Amen. 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 Come on, I didn't just praise the worship team to make a point. We got an incredible worship team. Can we get up for them one more time? But if you have your Bibles, whether it's a paper Bible, you're swiping there tonight on your phone, you can turn to Psalm 62, because I want to read from Psalm 62, verses 1 through 8. But as you're turning there, as you're swiping there, I just want to give a shout out. You know, my hair, I was telling somebody before service, it was a joke with my wife. I was like, I'm not going to cut the top of my head until COVID is over. And now, like, the, the vaccine, <laughs> thank you. I don't know if that was a compliment or whatever, I'll ask him later. But uh, <laughs> so now it's like, you know, everything's moving. And I'm, I'm talking to Steph. I'm like, you know, maybe I'll finally cut it. She loves it. I'm on the fence. But I see Stan Anderson walk in tonight. Come on, how many love Stan Anderson? I see Stan's flowing hair. And I'm like, I might not ever cut my hair again. Because I've said it before. I'll say it again. I want to be Stan Anderson when I grow up. So, you know, that just gave me some inspiration to keep it, keep it going and keep it growing. But that was all to give you some time to turn to Psalm 62. <laughs> Let's turn to God. And I do love you, Stan. Psalm 62, verses 1 through 8. It starts in verse 1. David says, my soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. How long will you assault a man? Would all of you throw him down this leaning wall? this tottering fence. They fully intend to topple him from his lofty place. They take delight in lies. With their mouths they bless, but with their hearts they curse. Find rest, O oh my soul, in God alone. My hope comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock and my refuge. Trust in him at all times, O oh people, Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. You know what's so powerful to me is, obviously I knew I was preaching this tonight. I don't think Amy, well Amy definitely didn't know this was going to be my passage tonight, talking about pouring our hearts out to God. And that was just confirmation. All right, as we jump into what will, if you're taking notes, effective conversion is the subject tonight. Effective with an A, A-F-F, -F, effective conversion. But in verse 3 of what we just read, the author David stressed and attacked, says he feels like a leaning wall or a tottering fence. What's implied in the Hebrew is that it would only take one more strong push for him to fall over. Anybody been there? <laughs> Anybody there tonight? If one more triggering event happens, it might just push you over the edge. I mean, let's be serious. Let's be honest. I wouldn't blame you. Our society, our families, our church, we're coming out of a global pandemic, which whatever your opinion was on masks and vaccines, all those things, it flipped your world upside down. This disease called COVID-19. Now, by definition, a disease, I'm going to read the definition, is a harmful deviation from the normal structural or functional state of an organism, generally associated with certain signs and symptoms, and the important part tonight, not simply a direct result of physical injury. Meaning, yes, it affects our physical body, but in a different way than an outright assault or a physical accident. Yet, it affects our physical body, so we work to find healing. But no matter what your personal experience has been over the past year with COVID, this year caused what you could call dis-ease, which is the root of the word, a lack of ease, a.k.a. stress. <laughs> Can I get an amen? We all felt different levels of stress. We all probably wrestled with it in different ways based on our different personalities. This too 
is not simply a direct result of a physical injury and it's drained our emotional tanks. The question is, do we work as hard to find healing when it deals with our emotions and not our physical bodies? Because for many of us, not just COVID, I wanna speak for myself here, but a whole lot else has been going on, right, in the past year, beyond just the news. Emotional injuries can be sparked by loss, failure, betrayal, loneliness, a whole host of other things that we'll encounter as we go about life, pandemic or no pandemic. There too will cause harm. These two will cause harm that is not simply a direct result of physical injury. And my point, why I harp on this, is because we as a culture, again and again, we prioritize the physical body over our mind and our mental health, right? Physical health over mental health, physical pain over emotional pain. If somebody breaks their arm, I'm not gonna just tell them, shake it off, it's all in your head, right? But when people struggle with depression or anxiety for too long in our culture, the, the cry has been, well, just shake it off. It's all in your head. And we're guilty of it in the church, too. We just don't say shake it off. We say, pray it away. You know, you'll be good. You know, there's this tension between the fruit of the Spirit that we see we're supposed to have in Scripture and yet these difficult emotions, be it anger, be it sadness or sorrow, anxiety. And sometimes the church can do a poor job dealing with this tension. Maybe you feel that tension even as we just begin to talk about it. Well, buckle up. <laughs> Because the result of this is many in the church today, we live unhealthy and far less effective lives than we could be living. And this is why effective conversion is so necessary and so healing and so empowering and why we need it. What is effective conversion? By definition, effective conversion happens when a person steps into personal responsibility for their emotional healing and development. It happens when I realize that I can't be spiritually healthy if I'm emotionally unhealthy. That spiritual maturity is tethered to and tied to my emotional maturity. And as we've talked about this in, in previous weeks, this idea of maturing, growing more like Christ, or sanctification is what the, the theologian Donald Gelpi, who we've been polling from, would call ongoing conversions. And this concept introduced to us by Donald Gelpi is at the heart of this series, Shema. He speaks to five conversions of the heart. Again, they're not always first, but foremost conversion, religious conversion. Right? A, a vow of faith and devotion to Jesus as Lord and authority over our lives. But if we're to continue from justification into sanctification and grow more like Christ throughout our lives, it will take ongoing conversion. Because there's also intellectual conversion, sociopolitical conversion. Right? Moral conversion. All of these you can podcast outside of moral conversion, which Fred's going to close it with next week. But as we've been talking about in this series, Shema, these conversions bring our hearing into alignment. Because Shema is the Hebrew word for hear and obey. It's two sides of the same coin. What's implied is you will have a reflexive obedience when this person speaks to you. Not rebellious, right? Not reluctant as we've looked at, but reflexive listening. But to come back to effective conversion, again, effective conversion happens when a person steps into personal responsibility for their emotional healing and development. Now, maybe at first you're, you're like, it's kind of awkward to hear responsibility and emotions in the same sentence. Because I think we often think of emotions as something that's hardwired deep in the recesses of our brain that are triggered by events or moments in life. There's a doctor, Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett, who spent 25 years of studying the brain, trying to find out 
about emotions, studying uh, brain scans, physiology studies, and, and more to, to find out what, what is the deal with emotions. And she found that emotions aren't hardwired and, and triggered. Matter of fact, you aren't born with an emotional circuit in your brain. What she would say is emotions aren't built in, but they're built. Emotions, as she describes them, are guesses. They're primal predictions that your brain constructs based on past experiences and past inputs in a moment of sensation as billions of brain cells are going off in unison. Sounds like chaos, but this means that you have more control than you might think you do. And Dr. Barrett says, with more control also comes more responsibility. Now, responsibility sometimes feels like a weighty word, but I want to encourage you tonight. That is empowering. You aren't at the mercy of emotions buried layers deep in your brain, right? If you change the ingredients, the inputs in your brain, right, the, the inputs in your life, you can slowly, gradually, sometimes, let's admit it, arduously transform your emotional life. It's not as simple as <laughs> changing your pants, but it's possible. The ingredients the experience in your life today will shape how your brain uh, predicts or guesses or emotes in your tomorrows. And effective conversion is this step into responsibility for your own emotional health and development. On a very small scale, not to oversimplify a complex topic, like when I work out, I listen to a certain type of music because I'm working out. Now, I know some pastors who will go to the gym get a good sweat on, work out hard to like Hillsong United, Elevation Worship. I know other people that can go to the gym and work out, like work out to a podcast, just people talking. If that is the goal, if that is the end, I, <laughs> I need to be sanctified. Because when, when I go to the gym, I want something aggressive, forceful, dare I say belligerent, because I want an emotion in my body that is gonna help me push through as I work out. I don't want the emotion I feel to be tranquility, right, as I'm working out. I choose my input, I choose my ingredients, and I choose my music accordingly. Now, on a much larger scale, and again, sometimes much deeper underneath the surface in our minds, our emotions are largely built by inputs and ingredients. But see, here's where it gets heavy, and maybe you're already going here mentally. In life, there's ingredients that we don't control. <laughs> Things happen to us, both on a broader societal scale like COVID-19, or you look at history like 9-11, there's things that happen to our culture, there's things that happen to us individually that we don't control. Trauma, abuse, a diagnosis, right? emotional violence. And these experiences, they leave traces on our emotions. They can leave traces on our capacity for intimacy, even our immune systems. And see, sometimes depression and anxiety, it's circumstantial, it's passing day to day. Right? For some, though, it's, it's clinical. Right? For some, emotions like anxiety and depression are, seem like a domineering fixture in their lives. And I want to be clear that, that most of what we're talking about tonight, we're talking about emotions and feelings that are like the circumstantial variety that come and go day to day. But hear me out on this too. Right? Whether it's clinical or circumstantial mental health, God doesn't abandon us to it. He meets us in it. And there's hope. Period. Period. You know, I've been slowly reading The Body Keeps the Score, the bigger book here, by Bessel van der Kolk, whose name I probably just butchered, but I doubt he'll ever listen to this podcast. But it's been on my reading list for like 10 years, and I just started it because it's kind of hefty, and I'm like, do I want to read a, a big book on trauma for the next like six months? 
But I was reminded why I put it on my reading list some 10 years ago because last night, Steph and I had a Zoom call with a, a couple on the other side of the country that's thinking about adopting internationally. They had questions because we've adopted internationally. Our son is five and a half. We adopted him years ago now. They had questions about what do we expect? What's the process like? What's it like when you bring them home? And one of the things we talked about was just behaviors. Sometimes he acts out. <laughs> I mean, I guess all of our kids probably sometimes act out. But sometimes he acts out or he misbehaves, and it's not so much about his, his attitude in the moment. It's not so much about what's even happening in the moment. It's, it's based on trauma he experienced years ago that he didn't ask for. That happened to him. It was out of his control. See, this book talks about the impact that trauma can have on one's body, namely your brain. It's not just all in your head. It's literally imprinted in connections in your brain and how it reacts and how it operates. But one of the revelations within this book that was written in 2014 is that all this brain mapping and studies have shown that your brain has this natural neuroplasticity, which simply means it can reorganize its connections and its functions. So events and experiences, yeah, they can shape our mind in profound ways, but not just negatively, also positively. And from medicine to therapy, over time with good habits, people can push mental and emotional health towards being healthy again. And you know, throughout the historical books of 1 and 2 Samuel to the Psalms, and here in Psalm 62, we get a, a big picture of David's life. Man, David experiences emotional and physical assault, attacks with slander, man, attacks with spears in a, in a room while he's trying to play an instrument, <laughs> as well as various betrayals, both personal and on national levels. This guy's a king that experienced betrayals. This man had plenty of things to work through emotionally. And yet in his writing, this is where we see where effective conversion and our emotional journey receives this gift from religious conversion and our relationship with Jesus. Because Jesus infuses our emotional journey with hope. See, what we've talked about, people may experience some of these conversions outside of religious conversion. Somebody may experience uh, effective conversion apart from Jesus and work towards taking responsibility for their inputs and ingredients and working towards emotional health and development. But there is a hope we have in Christ that is transformative, that's irreplaceable. And it's here in Psalm 62. In Psalm 62, verse 1, David writes, from him comes my salvation. Right, speaks to religious conversion. And as a result, in Psalm 62, verse 5, David can write, from him comes my hope. Because his effective conversion and emotional journey has been infused with hope. It's because of this that he can pour out his heart and invite and exhort others to do the same. But, you know, I think sometimes the more common command that we think of when it comes to things to do with our heart is protect your heart, right? Proverbs 4.23. It's a, a very memorized verse in the church, and it's a good verse. Right? It speaks to, hey, protect your heart from those inputs and ingredients because the rest of your life, the issues of life, dare I say, your emotions will flow from it. All there in Proverbs 4.23. But I think in some circles it can be used to, validate keeping some emotions out, like positive thoughts only. And protecting your heart can come to mean don't let anger in, right? Don't let sorrow in. Don't let doubt in. And why do we think this? Because again, when it comes to how to handle what some would classify as difficult feelings, right? Anger, sorrow, lament. So often, we the church have fumbled the ball. You know, I've shown a lot of movie clips in the pulpit over the years. I don't think I've ever showed an animated movie. I almost pulled out Inside Out, showed a little Inside Out in here tonight. <laughs> because Inside Out plays out almost entirely in the mind of an 11-year-old girl, Riley. 
And the main characters are Riley's emotions, joy, anger, fear, disgust, and sadness. And at the heart of the movie is this conundrum. What are we supposed to do with sadness? Like early on in the movie, Joy takes sadness to like the back of whatever room they're in and takes chalk and draws this little circle and she's like, you stay here, right? So you don't screw anything up, right? Don't touch anything. Because what are you supposed to do with sorrow? But through the course of the movie, we learn a valuable lesson. Sadness has a place in life because sadness can be cathartic. Sadness can be healing. And when recognized fully, it can be beautiful. And at the end of the movie, we come to realize not only does Riley needs sadness, but sadness needs a place in us. Not just sadness either, but the full range of emotions for us to be emotionally healthy in life. But you know, I think sometimes if the church had its choice of, of animated movies, we choose the Lego movie. Because the Lego movie's famous song is, everything is awesome, right? And when you come into church, like, how you doing, brother? Everything's awesome, right? Blessed and nothing less. I'm living the dream, right? And I'm not talking about we should come in and like bleed emotionally on the first person that greets us. We'll get to that later when we talk about community. But so often that we think the posture of our life should be everything is awesome all the time and nothing less. And it wouldn't hurt for all of us to go home and watch Inside Out tonight. Maybe spend the week reading through the Psalms and relearn that joy and sorrow and all these other difficult emotions can and should coexist. I mean, for crying out loud, Isaiah 53, Jesus is known as the man of sorrows. Yes, joy is meant to be ours as believers, as are all the fruits of the Spirit. God wants us to have faith and trust in him, but not at the cost of turning a deaf ear to our emotions. I think so often we think that emotions will get in the way of our hearing from God or get in the way of our connecting with God. I mean, think about it. You're inviting the God of the universe into your heart when it's a, an emotional mess. There's anger or sorrow all over the place. It kind of feels inappropriate like to, to invite the God of the universe into that. But God's presence is not contingent on how tidy our heart may be or our emotions are. It's contingent on his unconditional love, right? Not the condition of our emotions. And this is why David teaches us, as he does in, in Psalm 62, to pour our hearts out to God. I say teaches because uh, it's Tim Keller in his book on prayer, which ironically I think is called Prayer, where he says that the Psalms are the school of prayer. And I love that thought. I've always liked that description, but if that's the case, then we've kind of skipped out on some GEDs, <laughs> played hooky on some classes. Because something like two-thirds of the Psalms are laments. And sometimes you read through the Psalms, you get to like Psalm 109. And David is so raw and angry, calling down all kinds of wild things on his enemies and their families and their descendants. And you're thinking, let me get to Psalm 110. Because we would think, man, I need to take these emotions and, and bury them somewhere rather than what David does we would think, man, if I bury them, I'm protecting my heart. But the action David encourages is pour out your heart. And not just pour out your heart, pour out your heart to God. We can't simply bury our emotions. If we don't pour out our emotions somewhere, they're going to leak. Right? That anger is going to leak into your workplace or your marriage or your parenting or, or your, your, even the way you speak to yourself and you view your future. It was C.S. Lewis that once said, I have learned now that while those who speak about one's miseries usually hurt, those who keep silence hurt more. I've learned that while those who speak about one's miseries usually hurt, those who keep silence hurt more. If we don't talk out our emotions with God and with those people he's placed in our lives, we'll end up taking them out on ourselves or those people he's placed in our lives, usually the ones we love the most. We're going to leak. <laughs> So why not pour it all out to God? 
burying your feelings is like emotional whack-a-mole. Again, like you hit it over here, you're trying to bury it, it pops up somewhere else. It's going to pop up again, be it your, your marriage, be it your workplace, be it habits, right? Addictions and addictive habits are so often how we outsource our emotions or outsource wrestling with our emotions or just avoid our emotions altogether. So what are healthy habits, right? So what are healthy, good ingredients that can bring and foster emotional health and development? Well, 22nd time out, uh, I'm not sharing this as somebody who has leveled up in their emotional development. When we were in the staff meeting, it was like, Juice, you're going to be preaching effective conversion. I was like, God, you sure? <laughs> but I will share, right, tools along the journey, like tools my therapist, yes, my therapist has given me, right? Therapy, it, again, we so often elevate, rabbit trail, our physical body over like our, our mind. We'll go for a checkup for our body. What are you doing to check up your mental health, right? Therapists are a tool, and therapists have given me tools. And people smarter than me have given me tools. Like Pete Scazzaro wrote this book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. I could walk off the stage, tell you to read this, and you'd be good, right? He's smarter than me. And if you don't read books like this, he's got a devotional, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, day by day. If you won't even read that, guess what? You can't get away from it. He's got a podcast, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, the podcast. I think there's Emotionally Healthy Marriage, Emotionally Healthy Church, Emotionally Healthy Diet. He's probably got everything by now. But that's a good book. But all right, three ingredients for emotional healing and development. Let me just hand you three. It's not comprehensive. It's probably imperfect. But let me hand you three. The first is holy inactivity. Holy inactivity speaks to rest, restfulness. I almost said restlessness. No, no, no. Restfulness. David says in the passage we read, my soul finds rest in God alone. And the Hebrew roots speak to motionless waiting. A holy inactivity, motionless waiting, which highlights the value of, of, of Sabbath, rest, and silence. A direct translation of the Hebrew here reads, surely to God silence my soul. And in Psalm 119, 164, yeah, 164, Psalm 119 is a big one. <laughs> David makes a habit of this. He says, seven times a day I praise you. Seven times a day he would hit pause to praise and pray and give thanksgiving seven times a day. And studies have shown this is wisdom when it comes to how our, our brain works. Seven five-minute breaks taken throughout the day will do you better than one one-hour break followed by like a seven-hour grind. Studies have shown we don't need longer time to recharge as much as we need a greater frequency. So David was on to something. Because the grind, right, demands and distractions. If we're not careful, they'll carry you from sunup to sundown to the point we rarely have the time to pause, be still, and to feel, to actually feel, right? To the point some of us need to relearn to stop and feel and feel our emotions. I'm guilty of this. And I think of the color wheel, right? I, I, I love art. The color wheel I learned as a kid, right? There's, there's uh, you know, just a handful on there, but then there's hundreds of colors that have names. I go to buy paint. There's hundreds of them out there. In the same way, like uh, there's eight families of emotions, but then there's hundreds and thousands of nuanced emotions that it's healthy and helpful to put a name to. But too often, I'm guilty of just giving me the big, the big label that I can just throw at Steph when she asks me how my day is or how I'm feeling and, and keep it moving. I'm tired. I'm stressed. You know, two like big words, and then just keep it moving. I never actually pause to think, well, no, like how am I feeling? What am I feeling? Because if silence and solitude, if they don't regularly shape you for feeling, 
then demands and distractions will wear you out to your number of your feelings. Leighton Ford once said, in perpetual motion, I can mistake the flow of adrenaline for the moving of the spirit. The French philosopher and mathematician Blaise Pascal observed that most of our human problems came because or come because we don't know how to sit still in our room for an hour. I love that quote. <laughs> because what happens when you sit down and pause for an hour? After that five to ten minutes of your mind racing through lists and all these other thoughts, eventually you start to feel how you're feeling, to feel your emotions. We have to relearn the power of holy inactivity, the power of, of the rhythm of pausing, because it helps us feel again, feel our emotions, identify our emotions. This rhythm of pausing is what some theologians and Pete Scazzaro would call the daily office, is what David calls the refuge where no enemy can reach me. Again, in Psalm 119, we see David prays seven times a day, pauses to praise God seven times a day. In Daniel, Daniel does it three times a day. How many times a day am I pausing to be with God, feel what I'm feeling, and pour it out to him and offer it up to him? I mean, at the very least, May we give him the, the beginning of our day and the end of our day. Let him get the first word. Let him get the final word. Just as your body has to be rested and fed to stay healthy, the seed of your emotions, your soul needs to be fed. And, and the Bible is soul food, right? The, the Bible says we don't live by bread alone because we also have souls that need to be fed and need to be healthy. And that comes through the presence of God and the word of God. And we don't just see our need for Rhythm in our pausing day to day, God infuses it in our weeks, right, with the Sabbath, a holy pause. We've preached about it. We probably preach on the Sabbath once a year here. There's so many podcasts you can go back to on the Sabbath. So, yes, I intentionally on the Sabbath try to draw near to God, spend time with God. But I also practically try to perform what my therapist would call maintenance. It's been a long week, right? Your Sabbath, you just got done with a long week. Your body, your mind, your emotions, they need a release, a healthy release that my therapist would call maintenance routines and habits and escapes that provide a release. For me, that's exercise and painting. For you, that might be gardening, might be hiking, might be a book, a puzzle, I don't know. But whatever recharges you, do it. Because if you don't have a healthy release, that's how we end up with all these unhealthy releases. Whether it's a simple addiction to social media or an insidious addiction to pornography, it's because we don't have a healthy release, we all of a sudden turn to this other one over here, where again, we can outsource our emotions. And look, for me, when so much is out of control, <laughs> from health diagnosis to, to, again, the stuff going on globally, when so much is unpredictable, predictability, establishing some predictability and routine in my own life, my own life can reduce stress, and predictability can create emotional stability. I heard it said once that routine produces resilience. Rest needs to be a routine. Pressing pause needs to be a routine because it helps us feel again. And when you take enough time, you don't just learn to feel. You learn to distinguish between feeling and thinking. Dr. Barrett, again, to quote her again, she said, emotions are data, not directives. Or maybe you've heard it said in the church, right, feelings are meant to be felt but not always followed. In 1 Thessalonians 5, in a broad statement that we can apply to our emotions, Paul says, test everything and hold on to the good. The pause between feeling and reacting is where thinking and testing becomes valuable. Because I know in my life, I want to learn to follow my God-given identity rather than impulses inside of me or pressures around me. And that's the second ingredient 
not just a holy inactivity, but a hold on my identity. David says, my salvation and my honor depend on God. He identifies himself and what God had done for him and who he was in God. See, sometimes I think we go a step past the helpful, powerful step of of naming what we're feeling, naming our emotions. I feel fill in the blank to identifying with our emotions. I am fill in the blank. Now, there's nothing wrong with saying I'm stressed or I'm depressed, but sometimes it can seep into our very identity. David says, man, I'm saved. I'm forgiven. I'm graced. Even when all continue, all hell, mind you, continues to break loose. Like in this psalm, we don't see all the, all the chaos end. But as he's writing, he speaks to the fact he's graced. Show yourself the same grace that God gives you. Like seriously, he's merciful. He's kind. He, 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 he realizes we were created with limits because he created us. We have limits to our energy, our time. We have to sleep, <laughs> our emotional tank. We have limits. So when you have those moments, maybe those entire seasons where you feel grief, maybe it's anxiety, maybe it's stress, maybe it's depression, it doesn't mean that you're not in communion with God. It doesn't mean that you're not in deep relationship with God. It simply means you're human. It means you're human. If you, sometimes we buy the lie that if you were closer to God, if you just prayed more, if you just checked these boxes over here, then you wouldn't feel that way. But then we don't just have those hard feelings. We got guilt and shame on top of it. So maybe we can't work through all those emotions tonight, but can we at least kick the guilt and shame to the side? 1 John 3.20 says, even if we feel guilty, God is greater than our feelings, and he knows everything. God is greater than our feelings and emotions. Your identity in God is bigger than your feelings and emotions. But let me also say, God is greater than your feelings and emotions, but God is not too great for feelings and emotions because God feels. We see in scripture that that God feels and we're created in his image. So feeling emotions doesn't just make you human. In a way, it reflects the divine. God in scripture (laughs) delights, feels jealousy, is troubled, feels anger, feels sorrow, feels compassion, feels patience, feels love. All these different emotions, he possesses them and we're made in his image. Our varying emotions don't dishonor God or disqualify us any more than they did for Jesus. So no, feelings aren't meant to be blindly followed, but I do believe that there are a way that God can speak to us and lead us as he continues to love us. And I would argue even that there are things that you can learn as you follow God emotionally that you may never arrive at intellectually. Let me tell you, there are seasons, you might think that sounds wild, there will be seasons we go through in life that are storms, grief, suffering. You'll learn things about God and yourself in those seasons that I don't think you can learn just reading a book. But my identity isn't the storm. My identity isn't my feelings in it. My identity is always as a child of God, loved by God through Jesus. So not just a a holy inactivity, a hold on my identity. We need a home and community. David says, oh, people. But I love the New Living Translation. He says, my people, pour out your hearts to God. Which is wild because for all the abuse and betrayal others had and were inflicting on him, David still had tight to community. It's like the words that would be written thousands of years later in this book, right? The body keeps the score would resonate with him. Because in that book, it says our capacity to destroy one another is matched by our capacity to heal one another. Restoring relationship and community is central to restoring well-being. We need a home and community. You know how I can confidently say I have so far to go in my effective uh, conversion and emotional journey? I have a wife 
Her name is Stephanie White. She is my closest community, and she knows my health best. Not just my physical health, my emotional health, my spiritual health. And as we build a family together, sometimes I'm reminded of the impact my family has had on me. Often for good, right? But your family and your culture can leave imprints on your life that you operate from. From simple expectations to scripts that are memorized in childhood that you might even just operate from intuitively in life. Some healthy, some unhealthy. Like you think about things from how sex is talked about and treated to how other cultures are talked about and treated in your home. How success is defined or how money is handled from how sadness might be deemed a weakness or anger might be deemed dangerous. And some of this may be out and in the open. Some of it may be unspoken. Either way, it shapes you for better or worse. But by God's grace, we get to rewrite our scripts with scripture. And one of the gifts we see in scripture is the family of faith. We get to unwrap, untether, and put aside any harmful scripts from our family of origin and begin to be shaped and discipled within the family of faith. Not to dishonor our family, not to dishonor our past or our heritage, but to honor God and his word. And one of the things it says in God's word in Galatians 6, 2, is share each other's troubles and so obey your Lord's command. Don't suppress and repress your troubles. No, express them, confess them to each other, pour them out. Again, not bleeding on everybody, right? But we need people like a therapist, a pastor, a close friend, your spouse, that we can share the emotions we're feeling with. We need a healthy community to be healthy emotionally. We need a home and community, a hold on our identity in Jesus, a holy inactivity. And just to close, you might ask, what does this look like? And to come almost full circle, because we still got to close the series out next week, but Pastor Fred launched it with uh, Elijah on, I believe it's Mount Carmel, right? Challenging those prophets of Baal, right? Calling down fire from heaven to burn up what was on that altar. And we realized not only did he do that, he was burnt out. (laughs) After this stunning, miraculous showdown with the prophets of Baal, a rogue wave of raw emotions just hits him spirals into anxiety, depression. He even starts contemplating his life's end. And this is Elijah. He's on like the Mount Rushmore of Old Testament prophets. This can happen to anybody, right? Spiritual health and emotional and mental health, they're an ongoing need for every human being. But God's prescription for Elijah, we see some holy inactivity. I love the first two, take a nap and eat a snack. I'm good. Try to do that daily. It won't happen, but I'll try. And then he sends Elijah on this this journey to Mount Sinai, which takes 40 days, and he doesn't have podcasts. He doesn't have, like, he doesn't have the AirPods. That's silence, right? He's just walking in the wilderness with his feelings that he's been wrestling with. It's a holy inactivity. And then when he gets to the mountain, right, God helps him lay a hold of his identity because Elijah said with his mouth, I'm no better than my father's. He's feeling it. And like David, again, people just preaching my sermon for me before I even get up here. David's sharing, like when he gets to the mountain, God reveals himself to Elijah. This doesn't just happen in every page of scripture. Like God reveals himself to Elijah so Elijah can remember who God is and who he is in him. And then finally, he reminds him about community. Before Elijah spirals into this depression, it says he leaves his servant behind. And then he's all alone and he comes up to the mountain and he's like, God, he says, I'm all alone. And God says, well, actually, there's, there's 7,000 just like you. 7,000 just like you. Elijah was in touch with his feelings. He felt isolated and alone, but he was out of touch with community. There were 7,000 others. And God connects him immediately with one, Elisha. And come on, if the worship team could come up in Elijah's life, 
You know, it's tricky with Scripture, right? Sometimes in one page it can span months or years, but in Elijah's life we see this seemingly quick turnaround for him emotionally. And maybe for you it's not going to be a snap of the finger, like it seems sometimes in Scripture. Maybe a lifelong journey. But let me remind you that our religious conversion, our relationship with Jesus, it gives us hope. It infuses our lives with hope. We don't just see glimpses of hope in, in, in science and our brain and the way that God created us to where we can change inputs and ingredients and, and shape our emotional health. More importantly, we have hope in Jesus Christ. And as we leave tonight, may we be able to say, as David does in Psalm 62, verse 1, from him comes my salvation. May every one of us, as it says in Philippians 2, bow our knee to Jesus. Every tongue confess that he's Lord to the glory of God the Father. May every one of us be able to say, man, from him comes my salvation. And if you can't say that, you've never prayed a prayer offering your life, a vow of devotion to Jesus, let's do it tonight. We're going to go into worship, but then we're going to come back to prayer. And if that's you tonight, we would love to pray for you, rally around you, resource you, right? All of that. If that's you, don't leave tonight without praying with us. But then as David says in Psalm 62, verse 5, from him comes my hope. We're all walking wildly different journeys. But we all feel similar emotions. And God knows your journey. God knows your circumstances. God knows the details of your life. And whatever emotion you're feeling tonight, he wants to come alongside you in it. Not abandon you to it. Come alongside you in it. And he doesn't want to rush you along. He doesn't want to minimize your feelings, but he does want to offer you hope again. Hope that we can hold on to and cling to as we continue to follow him, even in the midst of our feelings. And let me tell you, we didn't hit on it tonight, but worship may be one of the best and most important ingredients to shape our future. It's an input that reminds us of who God is and who we are in him. So as we close tonight, can, can we come into worship? Can we obey David's advice in worship? He says, oh, my people, me tonight, oh, city life, right? Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our worship. Can we stand tonight and pray, Lord God, we thank you that Jesus Christ shows us, not just through his death and resurrection, the, the, the grace and mercy and love that flow from you, God, but just his life. He felt the whole range of emotions, sorrow, anger, but he was without sin. And God, may we, as we follow Jesus and are faithful to Jesus, not try to deaden our ear to the way that you may try to speak to us through our feelings and our emotions, but God, may we feel them and may we pour them out to you. May we feel them and may you meet us in them. Tonight as we worship, whatever we may be feeling tonight, God, I pray that we will be able to lay it down before you and simply say, God, I don't know when I'm going to get out of here. <laughs> I don't know when I'm going to be able to, to leave this room where I'm feeling this emotion, but I always trust that God will meet me there and pull up a seat in that waiting room. His presence, <laughs> it infuses every season with hope, every emotion with hope. So God, tonight as we worship, Holy Spirit, come alongside us. Fill us again. Remind us of who you are. Remind us of who we are in you. In Jesus' name, let's worship.